This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is CT Media. There's a question I've heard again and again from listeners to the podcast. It has to do with the language of spiritual trauma, and what do we mean by that? If you've listened to the series itself, then you've heard various stories of damage, disorientation, and deconstruction that happened in the aftermath of the collapse of Mars Hill. But how do we account for the varying levels of impact in the lives of members of the church, or in the stories of people who've been wounded in other churches with similar collapses? Today on the show, we're going to try to answer those questions, to begin to understand in concrete terms what we mean by spiritual trauma, how it affects not just the mind and the soul, but also the body, and how we understand it in a time when therapeutic language gets tossed around all too easily. And we're going to begin to explore, for those who've suffered it, how they might begin to heal. My guest for this episode is Andy Kolper. Andi is a licensed professional counselor and the author of Try Softer. She specializes in trauma and body-centered therapies and is particularly interested in the intersection of faith and psychology. She's also a survivor of trauma and brings her own experience of change, healing, and life with God into her work. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Today's episode, Healing and Resurrection After Spiritual Trauma. When somebody comes to you out of a really difficult church experience, where's the threshold where you start to see this was spiritual abuse, they've got signs of spiritual trauma? A place to start, and really when we're talking about any type of trauma, and and abuse is a type of trauma, I really begin with the body. Because the mind can have its own perspective, and the nervous system may not match the experience of the mind. You know, so your mind might be like, oh, it was fine. It wasn't that bad. I looked up this fact and it it didn't match. But let's just say, for example, I'm sitting with someone and they're talking about an experience that they had where prayer was used in a weaponized way to make them feel as if they had to do something. And that was used as though that person who was praying was the only one who could hear from God, not the person themselves. Let's say we're in session, and that person begins to talk about their own prayer life, maybe. And they're like, you know, I I try to pray, but every time I do, I automatically feel like I'm watching myself. I feel really disoriented. I feel disconnected. Hmm. In my work, we can't say, oh, here's your spirit. Here's your body. Here's your mind. That's not how we were created. We are integrated, holistic people. And so, as that person's body is testifying to the reality that this doesn't feel safe enough for me to engage with, and therefore, from a place of needing to find some 
like form of safety, I'm needing to, what I would call in that situation, dissociate or disconnect, which is our nervous system's way of saying like, I'm pulling the plug on this because in the past, this has been deeply unsafe for me. And so to go back to that baseline question, a lot of what we're looking for is both sometimes like people recognize that something wasn't okay for them, that that power was used to harm them, that spirituality or faith was used as a cloak over the reality of actually what I want to do is control you or harm you or you are a transaction to me or this person who harmed you, it's their representation of who God is to you. And so for me, though it's helpful to have some definitions, looking for like patterns of using spiritual experiences um, in a harmful way or a controlling way, like we could look at that and say, yes, generally speaking, that might count as spiritual or, or religious abuse. But what we're also looking for is the information of our body. And so in our culture, a culture that's deeply disembodied, um, particularly often Western Christian culture, mm-hmm. that can be very difficult to mm-hmm. get that information. Yeah. I think the challenge for a lot of people hearing that that idea, when you talk about it's in the body, for you as a therapist, then what are you looking for? How, what are they exhibiting when when they've come out of one of those experiences? Yeah, really good question. And I think the number one thing that has become so helpful to me when talking about things like spiritual abuse, but really any type of harm or trauma, is looking at what is called the window of tolerance. Um, and that phrase was coined by Dr. Dan Siegel, but I found it really helpful. And I, and I utilize it a lot to help people understand that when we're in our window, it's really when our whole brain, body, and I would even say our spirit, mm. is able to interact. We're integrated. And I think that really is the place from which, um, from a faith perspective, we interface. Like our, like the God-given wisdom of our bodies also interfaces with like our spiritual wisdom. Like we are whole. Um, and so we have the best opportunity to live from that place when we're in that window. And I would also just say that's the place in which we can feel our feelings or we can engage, you know, an interaction or we can really have a sensation in our body and everything remains online. And when I say that, does it, it doesn't mean that everything's easy. It doesn't mean that we're just like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. It means that we can literally tolerate it in our body. So what happens, though, is that our body, through something called neuroception, it is always scanning the environment for safety or unsafety, for threat. And even before you know, we've had a conscious thought, um, our body can begin to go up into what would be like fight or flight or potentially the fawn response, which oftentimes it sort of looks a little bit like people-pleasing. And if those things don't resolve the threat, we will then go down into that dissociation. So that's typically sort of a disconnection or a numbness. It can even look like sort of a depression or a heaviness. And there's a whole spectrum of that. So this is really important. And this for me is when I talk about the language of the body and listening to the body, when I am in session with someone, first of all, part of my work as a therapist is to be really connected to my own body. Hmm. Because one of the amazing things about our bodies is that 
as we are present in our bodies, we literally have the internal framework to actually track with the nervous systems in the bodies of those around us. And so as we do that, for me as a therapist, I'm sort of noticing. I'm noticing cues. Like, is someone beginning, they're saying how much they love their church, but they're like, they're agitated and they're like maybe even starting to sweat or, you know, they're looking at the door because they're just, their body is like, okay, this isn't safe anymore for me to talk about this. And so part of my work as a therapist is, both noticing that, tracking with that person, and and helping them to recognize what is it that they need in that very moment to help bring them back into their window of tolerance. So for some people, that might mean that they can't just dive into their story. Like maybe someone comes in and they've got years of spiritual abuse that maybe they're just beginning to have an understanding of. Um, Oftentimes, I will give them a very, very quick overview of how I do my work so that they understand why it may be important for them not to just go into that verbal description of what happened. Because I think our bodies are so designed to want to heal. But what can happen is, is it's almost like a car that gets stuck in the snow And you're just putting the gas on and those wheels are spinning, but you're not going anywhere. And I think if we dive in sometimes too quickly and we're not honoring the pace of our body, so if we're not noticing the cues like, oh, I'm getting, I sometimes use the words activated. I'm getting super activated as I tell this story. If we can notice that and match the pace of our work with the pace of the nervous system, what begins to happen is that person builds safety and there's a deeper integration where healing can actually begin to happen. How is it that the body absorbs these experiences and it's throwing off signals that something's wrong, you know, and it's trying to sort of get attention, get space, do what it, do what it needs to do. Is there a process of seduction that's kind of getting past the body that does the damage in the first place? Like, is it the kind of thing where it's like you get involved in a spiritual community and it's like the honeymoon phase, man, this is all great. And people get invested at that season. And then when those alarm bells start going off, it's almost like they've got the cognition at that point that says, no, I have a story that tells me why I should be here and why I should stay committed to the to this place. Mm-hmm. And then is that the conflict? Like the body is saying, you got to get out of here. This isn't safe. You're being manipulated. There's all these reasons why you should go. But then you have this kind of spiritual overlay that's saying, these are your spiritual authorities. This is your community. This is your access to God. Is that what you're describing? Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a quote that I immediately thought of as you were saying that, and I forget it's who's who said it first, but the quote is, we repeat what we don't repair. Hmm. And I think, you know, your question of, is there a point at which we're just like, went, like we're bypassing the body, and then the body and the cognition are sort of fighting each other, because the cognition might be you know, I have to listen to my pastor. I have to listen to these these people who I believe are my spiritual authorities. And so then that's in conflict with my body and I don't know what to do with the conflict. So I'm just going to submit to the cognition. For a lot of people, that's where they find themselves really stuck in many situations. And so coming back to that quote, we repeat what we don't repair. 
One of the things that it makes me think about is how we were formed, perhaps, like in our early years around faith. How What we were told, the messages we were given, even around what does authority even mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. What does it mean to have a body? Um, what does it mean to listen to that body? What does it mean to be in relationship, period? Mm-hmm. Um, what does love mean? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be loved by God? So, like, these are some really central questions that, depending on how that was formed in you, is probably going to come back and shape how you respond to your body when your body gives you information. Because our brain, obviously, a lot of us, you know, there's that famous phrase that's like, mind over matter. And and one of the things I sometimes say is that there is no mind over matter. There is only us. Like mm-hmm. we carry, we carry the scars, we carry the harm. You might be able to white knuckle it for a while, but you carry it. And there is a cost to carrying that. And at some point I do believe the body says enough, like you won't listen enough. And I believe that's God given. I believe that is the grace of God because our body says, okay, I'll survive this. I'll go into survival mode. I'll white knuckle it for you. I'll figure out how to adapt. I'll make myself really small. I'll you know, be submissive to these people who are harming me just to get through the threat. And at some point the body goes, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's as far as I go. And, and usually that comes from a place of either we're clinically depressed or we cannot function anymore or chronic illness becomes profound or there's so much inflammation in our body because I think that oftentimes we think of our body like this tool and that's not what we are. We're not tools. We're not commodities. We're not objects. We're image bearers. We're beloved of God and I think at some point our body goes, okay, I need to be treated that way too. But Going back to that original question, yes, we do bypass the body. And I think we often do that because something in us longs and is made for wholeness. And we repeat what we don't repair because we want wholeness. Something in us is growing up that always meant that I just got shamed and psychologically abused, but maybe this time will be different. (laughs) And I get where that comes from. I see so many folks where this is not the first time. Usually, this has been years. This has been decades in the making. When finally they say, maybe this level of anxiety isn't normal. Maybe I shouldn't have to get to the place where I have a panic attack when someone prays or wants to pray for me. Maybe it's not normal to feel like I can't stay in my body in church. And so I think bringing some curiosity and some compassion, a lot of times I call it compassionate attention. I really believe that's God's posture to us, this compassionate attention that actually gives us the model for how to listen to our hurting parts of ourselves, that if we can turn towards the hurting parts of ourselves in our story with compassion, rather than simply running back into more harm, by the grace of God, we pause and we say, maybe not this time. Like, maybe it could be different. And God, give me the imagination 
to think that it could. Embed the hope in me to believe that this is not what you made me for. And I think it doesn't usually come right away. Oftentimes, we need someone to witness us, to create the safety to say, right where you are, I have no expectation, right where you are, like, is okay. And I just want to be here with you and honor your pain, honor the story that your body is holding, honor the cost that you have paid just to be here right now. And often from that place, this is where our God-given wisdom of our body begins to say, thank you so much to my mind. <laughs> I just need you to pause for a second and listen to the body mm-hmm. so the body can catch up. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think, I, I don't remember who said it first. I've heard, I've heard it many times, though, this idea that Job's friends were great friends right up until the moment that they opened their mouths, right? That throughout the book, there's all these arguments for why it happened and the moralistic reasons and all of this kind of stuff. He's saying, no, God's going to come up and he's going to explain this and he's going to defend me and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And then the end of the book, God shows up and he says, who are you to question me? You know, I'm going to ask the questions you're going to give me. And he paints this picture of creation, and it's this overwhelming vision of the smallness of Job in the midst of, you know, God as creator, the work he's doing. But then there's this very clear undercurrent that at the end of the day, Job is satisfied by that answer, that he's in this larger story. And then more fundamentally, his satisfaction comes from the fact that God did show up. God was present in, mm. in it, right? And I think about that a lot in these stories, um, our rush to sort of rationalize and verbalize our ways out of suffering and sorrow. How much do you think fighting and resisting grief, resisting allowing it to have a place in our life, it seems like a lot of that is cultural. Because there are cultures in the world that seem to do this a lot better than we do. I think that there is a really strong connection between how disembodied our culture tends to be and how poorly we grieve. I think that there's a really strong connection to that because grief requires that we be in our bodies. And to bypass the body often is a way to sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously not feel. And that means we then don't grieve. But the cost of that is that whatever is not grieved is still in us. So if we go back to that idea from earlier that your body is holding that, just because we haven't outwardly expressed it doesn't mean it's not there, doesn't mean it's not real. And and I think you're right. Like There are many cultures globally that do this well. I think of the black church. That that is done so well. That is just a deep resource. The ability to feel and to grieve and to lament the reality, you know? And I think it's so important to take notes, to notice that, that there are folks that are doing that well. And yet I know for myself and for so many trauma survivors, this has been an essential piece to healing. And what I would even say, I think the grief is really important. And I would even widen the scope to say to feel feelings. Because what tends to happen when we are disembodied is that 
our window of tolerance is really small. (laughs) And when the window of tolerance is small, it means that it doesn't take a whole lot to get our body like overly activated or into fight or flight or fawn or into a dissociative experience. And because that's true, what that means is, is that like, let's just say someone grew up in a traumatic home and then they went to church and something about that church environment felt really familiar, but maybe it was because it was familiar to the traumatic home they grew up in, the abusive home. And so what they did is they were repeating some of the dynamics within the church that they experienced at home, but their body is already primed. They're already primed to become more traumatized because their window, because of unresolved trauma, they are first of all not aware of the information of their body, but then when something really painful happens, their body is going to be more likely to internalize that as trauma versus when we can grieve, when we can feel, when we can be appropriately angry, when we can advocate for ourselves in the ways that we need to, when we can also have joy, when we can be encouraged and received, which is also part of that window of tolerance discussion, we have, it's like a container that has more room. And so because there's more room, our body moves through the experience. That's what I think of when we talk about grief is that um, it's a really normal part of the human experience to have grief. In fact, I think we have probably pathologized grief in our in a lot of times in our culture, which is a shame. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. It makes me think of the flip side of some of this as well, which is I remember having a conversation with a good friend a couple of years ago. It was actually before I had started working on this series. And this was a guy who had been sort of in the mix in this cohort of guys who planted churches in the early 2000s and, you know, had seen the whole deal and then had his own kind of moral failure and had to leave ministry for a time and go through a a restoration reconciliation process. And I mean, I think for someone in the shoes that he was in, he he had done an admirable amount of work. I remember talking to him, I was talking to him about this, and I was just kind of 
trying to understand why there is this phenomenon, why you just see it again and again, and the patterns are the same, and the abuses are the same, the sort of bullying, the narcissistic tendencies, all the rest of it. Why does it repeat? And I'll never forget, because he did not miss a beat from the moment I said that. And he goes, oh, it's dad stuff. It's all dad stuff. And he just named half a dozen people that he and I both knew who had done the same thing and was very quickly able to go, you know, father story, father heartbreak. And that was his own story, too. You know, as you talk about what we don't repair, we repeat. One of the phenomena I see in that is how many of those men, they were super high achievers. They gave everything to their work. And it's almost as though, you know, it's a cliche, but it's like you, you're constantly living to try to please the father that you never had or never mm-hmm. pleased or never, never had that connection with. And with that undone, looking for that healing, looking for that affirmation in an, an organization that's successful and a reputation that's, you know, successful, it's, yeah, it's a bottomless well you're trying to pour that stuff into. What I would just say, too, is that, you know, we haven't explicitly mentioned this, but this is very connected to attachment. Mm -hmm. And so, when I talk about attachment, what I am talking about is the internal framework of how we interact in relationships. And that's usually formed, um, you know, from our earliest caregivers. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is those templates we bring with us. And those are what we bring with us often as we, when we think of God. Um, but they also are in our, all of our human relationships are, and sometimes there's some variation and there's nuance. But when you talk about one of your main caregivers, f- perhaps being, you know, typically we could split it up between secure attachment and insecure attachment. Mm-hmm. And within an insecure attachment, there are some other categories. But secure attachment, essentially, there's like this internal sense that there's going to be, if there there is a rupture, there will be a repair, hmm. generally speaking. It's not perfect, but like there is enough repair there that there is, you just, you carry that around like literally in your body. And think about how powerful that is because if the other is the insecure attachment, it's the expectation that there won't be repair. And then what happens is that we get these adaptive strategies to help us manage the fact that we think there won't be repair, but we also know in our bodies that we have to have connection. Like, it's literally essential to our survival. You know, it's not just ornamental. Like, it's essential. And because that's true, if that's projected onto God, first of all, wow, some harmful theology comes out of that. But then also, you know, like, let's say that's what we're carrying with us if you're a leader, or if you're a parishioner, like a congregant, you're also carrying that. And so it can create this very sometimes harmful and even could be toxic cocktail that feels familiar. And one thing that's important to understand about our bodies is that our bodies prefer familiarity over actual safety if we haven't experienced a lot of safety in our lives. So if you grew up, if toxicity and harm and abuse feels really familiar, your body will actually prefer that until you get more resources and support around you because that's familiar. And our body goes, you know what? I know how to adapt to that. I'll go to that. I repeat what I don't repair. And so, you know, this whole, this thread of how really our mental health 
our relationships, our physical body gets so bypassed. And this is where it gets harmful to keep everything in the spiritual realm because it's so easy to proof text some really harmful ways to be in the world, right? Like you could slap something on there real quick and just be like, here's why you have to do that. And this is why it matters that anyone in leadership, including in the spiritual sense, really be doing that internal work with humility, with knowing like, like it's not a finish line. It really is a posture of we all are in process. None of us are fully complete. None of us have it all together. And at different times, we're going to need, you know, additional support. We're going to need someone to be able to give us direction or multiple someone's, definitely community. And so I think all of this becomes connected to those things that get passed down to us. And it gets especially harmful when we put it only under the realm of spirituality. No, I mean, there's so much there. I want to make sure, though, we talk a little bit about when you're in one of these unhealthy communities and you're wrapped up in those relationships that are, whether you want to call them toxic or codependent or whatever, not always, but hopefully, there's this moment where the spell breaks. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like you have this thing where all these hints and all these moments of uncertainty and all of them, something happens and it coalesces and you you wake up and you go wow like i just see a ton and oftentimes this is a traumatic thing some of the stories told in the podcast are these stories of it happens when people get fired it happens when they get cut out of ministry it happens when they raise a question and Mm -hmm. the force with which it's responded and oftentimes where people find themselves when the spell breaks is they feel like they're in zero gravity. They don't know where the ground is. They don't know where they are. And because those unhealthy communities are so all-consuming of their lives and their relationships and everything else, the isolation that they feel, the loneliness that they feel, is just incredibly profound. Where should someone who's in that place, where do they begin to look for healing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I hear you describe that experience, what it makes me first think of is just profound disorientation is the word. And I think particularly abuse survivors, uh, spiritual abuse survivors, that is a very common thread. Everything that I thought I knew, I don't think I know (laughs) anymore. And I think I want to just normalize that if you are a person listening to this and you have had that experience, you are not alone. This right here, when we talk about our body giving us information, this is it. This is the information. And I'm not saying it's like the be all end all, but it's just a really important piece of the fact that our body is literally saying to us, this is too much. This is not safe. And so even though that feels like almost like, hey, get like, where's my checklist? (laughs) Like, how do I like, let's get to healing now. But I think I just what I want to just do is actually slow that down. And the reason why is because we do have this tendency, especially once you've noticed that, oh, wow, this is really happening. It really is as bad as I thought it was, maybe maybe worse. Maybe I don't even have a sense of how bad it is. I think the first thing I would just say is that pacing yourself in this process is going to be 
truly essential. Um, One of the things I say a lot is the more complicated the trauma, the more complex the healing. And so if you are a person who's recognizing that this is complicated, this is not, oh, here's your Band-Aid and we fixed it. And it's no, like, here's all the relationships that are wrapped up into this. Here's my faith that's wrapped up into this. Here's how my family and our community and all these things, it's all wrapped up. And so I think that in a way, the very first step is honoring, is recognizing this is real. What I'm going through is real and it is probably pretty big for you. And that is so normal. The second thing I would just say is that to know some really basic skills is going to be really helpful. Um, One of the things I talk about a lot is something called grounding. And grounding is something that is essentially using our five senses to come back into our body. And specifically what I mean by that is to come back into our window of tolerance. Because our window of tolerance is the place from which you can begin to plan, right? Like to be able to maybe find a therapist or to begin to make a plan of rebuilding some safety, whether that's um, needing to take some time away from that particular church or from church in general. Like you really need your, your prefrontal cortex online for that. And that prefrontal cortex is only available to you when you're in your window of tolerance. So grounding is, you know, a really basic thing that you can do with that is using your, you know, five things you can see, uh, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Now, that's just an example. There's lots of ways to do grounding, but if you're just starting this, and for some folks hearing this, they're going to be like, okay, that sounds kind of (laughs) woo-woo. Like, I get it. I get it. But if you have lived outside of your window for a long time, or if you have been on the edges of your window, like most of the time, this is going to be a little bit challenging at first, but I just want to encourage you to give it a try. Because what we're trying to do is actually tap into the wisdom of your body so that you can take some further steps, such as, and these are things, you know, Mike, we've talked about in the past, um, I would encourage you to try to find a trauma-informed therapist. So someone who has an awareness of the body. So that's typically someone who has a background with things like EMDR or perhaps things like somatic experiencing. Um, And so part of what you're going to want to do is you have to begin to build some sort of stability, some sort of safety, so that you can make your plan of action. Because the reality is, is that every situation does have some nuance. Um, I wish that there was just like a one, two, three, and you're done thing. But sometimes this is going to mean that you're able to really engage the community and ask for help and ask them to participate. But sometimes it may not. And that's okay too. That's actually, that's normal. And I just, I think that in order to do that, it's going to be important that you gain some place where you feel like you can really be integrated and supported as you make that plan of action. There's been this growth in the use of the language of trauma that I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's always helpful. 
Christine Rosen wrote an article in commentary talking about the creep, the term to sort of apply to everything. Mm-hmm. And in the story, there's a quote from the author of The Body Keeps the Score, which is, you know, a best-selling book. It's kind of everywhere, but it's about trauma. It's about a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about Bessel van der Kolk? Yes. Yeah. But even he, you know, there's a there's a moment in this article where, you know, he's commenting on the the expansion of the term and the way it's ubiquitously being applied. And so I worry about this conversation even people hearing it and going oh, people had a bad experience in church and trauma's the buzzword. So they just tag that on there as a as a way to sort of shut down conversation. Oh, I, And you hear it too in terms of the way people say, I saw something on social media and it triggered me and, and it was traumatic and this, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's so flippantly applied to experience that I think when people try to talk about this conversation, you know, stories like people who walk in the back door of a church and their hands are shaking because of what they've experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talked to somebody who said, you know, when I left ministry from the unhealthy environment I was in, I couldn't read the epistles for a year because they had been so weaponized as a way to enforce authority within this very narrow bandwidth around a leader and that sort of thing. There's a wide gap between some of those experiences. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wonder how you mm-hmm. think about that. Because mm-hmm. it's also very difficult because you also want to be sensitive to people. Things hurt. Yeah. And there's, so there's a spectrum there. I just, I'm curious if you wanted to comment on that at all. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that it makes me think of is, and this is really misunderstood in our culture, and what I would say is probably the leading element of this that is probably misunderstood is that not all pain is trauma. And when I talk about trauma, what I am really talking about is something that has overwhelmed our nervous system's capacity to cope. And therefore, what is happening is that the experience itself is actually stuck in our body. And if that experience is then reactivated, we re-experience something that was from the past as though it's in the present. Now, when I'm saying that, there is a huge spectrum, meaning that something may be disturbing, and that is really uncomfortable if it gets activated, but that might look a little different than someone someone's trauma that's activated of being trapped in a burning building. Now, that's not to minimize the first person's experience. I think in order to do good body-centered work, we honor the body full stop. And I don't say that from a place of the body has all the answers. I say it from it has to be part of the work. Like, it has to be. Otherwise, we are creating circumstances in which if abuse or trauma is not already happening, it's going to happen and it's going to be probably more significant because the person doesn't have the internal framework to move through it. But so when I go back to that original idea, like not all pain necessarily becomes trauma. I think we misunderstand because I felt pain, first of all, it doesn't necessarily mean it became stuck. If you can process the pain, God willing, you can. I hope you can. That's what we are made to do. Our bodies are actually designed. Our bodies are amazing. And the things that I have watched people heal from, it's profound. It's like watching a miracle in process. Like, it's so cool. And so I know this to be true because I've literally watched it. (laughs) 
(laughs) and I've experienced it myself. But if we call all pain or discomfort trauma, first of all, then we, we take away some of the power and the preciseness of the term. Because being uncomfortable doesn't mean that we are traumatized, right? Being uncomfortable might mean it may be a little bit activating to our nervous system. So here's where some more nuance is needed. Just because we feel activated doesn't necessarily mean someone is harming us. And it may mean, though, that we still need to do some things to care for ourselves. Like, we may need to have some boundaries, even if it's not about that person. Like, that person who perhaps is is activating us may truly not be doing anything harmful. But based off of your experience and something that happened, that may be triggering. And so, we have to separate that out from abuse, Because just because we're triggered doesn't necessarily mean we've experienced abuse either. Now, with all that said, I I do want to just say that many, many folks that I've worked with, you talk about not being able to read the epistles for a year. I mean, I've known folks who years, they, they can't interact with the Bible. And I say that from a place of just honoring the spectrum and that For me, the only way that I see this working together is if we hold the inherent mutuality and reciprocity that is required as humans as we keep the discussion about trauma. Because if trauma just becomes another way to say, well, you hurt me, so now I can hurt you, that's where we lose it. Like we lose the humanity and that doesn't mean just be like mutuality and reciprocity doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean that we don't say like, Hey, this wasn't okay. Or this needs to change. But I do think it holds on to the inherent reality that we are all humans and we're made in the image of God and that there is something about that inherent dignity that if we lose it, we're in trouble. And and at times we have lost it, right? And it breeds more harm. And so to me, I mean, I get how it's like, it gets to be the catch-all term and all this stuff. It's like, I don't know that person's story. Sometimes I use the words like disturbance, like it was disturbing to my body. And I think that validates the reality that something about that was really hard for me. And I am an advocate for saying like, okay, what do you need to do to listen to your body? Is it, was this about a past situation? Is this about past and present? Is this only about the present? It requires wisdom and support to often navigate those situations. And I think that's really normal. And so to me, it's not so much, I think many people are longing to be validated in their pain. So what if we changed the conversation from the pain has to be bad enough for it to be validated to say, I believe you. This is painful. I get it. Like if we created the kind of culture where people didn't have to compete to have their pain heard, it would shift. And so I think instead of having to be like, you know, yes, you meet the diagnostic criteria for this and this, it's like, listen, if you have these emotions, like, I just want to free you up to feel those feelings. And obviously not in a way that's harmful to others, but like, I trust that God gave your body wisdom and there is a way that can move through. And as it does, I believe that like you're going to know and be able to imagine what comes next. 
And I think what happens is we just get really stuck on, I want to be seen, I want to be heard, I want my pain to be valid. And here's the thing, your pain is valid. Full stop. We'll be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. We've actually heard a lot from pastors who are saying, I want to learn from this process, and I want to grow, and I want to love my church better. But I'm also finding, not just because of the Marcel podcast, but because of the broader culture, this broader phenomenon of abusive pastors falling, pastors whatever, like they're dealing with such a culture of mistrust at times that, mm. that you know, the conversation becomes weaponized towards them. I mean, I know a lot of guys who just, they're ready to quit. They're like, if I, knew, if I had another job, I'd be done. And obviously, I'm not like trying to vouch for or defend every one of them either, because I don't know. But I love what you said a minute ago in terms of how do we approach this in such a way that recognizes that the image of God you know, is at work inside, inside all of us, including those that hurt us, including those that wounded us. One of my favorite quotes is Mark Maron, the comedian, um, has a podcast called WTF, and he's got these very narcissistic parents, and you know they divorced, and there's all this pain and from kind of his relationship with the two of them. He was notoriously like a very angry person for many years, and even into the early years of his podcast, it's been interesting to listen to him for a decade because you've heard him kind of temper and grow into some wisdom and gentleness, and it's really interesting. But he said one day, he said, you know, my, my process of kind of healing and making peace with the world and making my peace with my parents was when I just woke up one day and realized, oh, these are just some assholes who had kids, you know? <laughs> like, um, and it's funny, like, it's a funny comment, but it's also a really compassionate mm -hmm. comment. We often don't know what we're stepping into when we try to parent or we try to lead or we try mm -hmm. to have these kinds mm -hmm. of relationships, and we hurt people. And I, I think about that word grounding. I think about the connection to humility. I mean, David White talks about how the word humility means, like, of the earth. You yes, know? I love that. 
like I think part of what's what's fascinating about the moment we're in as well is that there's a shift from kind of the movement thinking of the mega church church growth phenomenon that says we're going to change the world, you know, for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that gets shifted into a just another kind of grandiosity that's like, well, we're going to reform mm-hmm. the culture yeah. instead of saying like, no, like we're going to be Job in front of a mysterious God in a mm-hmm. overwhelmingly complex world. So, I don't know, that's a lot in response, but it, I think this is such a complex story. So complex. And I think the the desire for quick solutions is so... I know it from my own life, wanting the quick solution. And I've written about this elsewhere, but like for me, the experience of of grief, of losing my dad, was the very thing that Mm -hmm. opened up my ability to grieve Mm -hmm. in the other ways that, you know, that I've had painful experiences in the church. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I do just want to say, I think that, you know, this is why I think that pacing element matters so much. And I think it's not only for the people like, you know, in congregations and parishioners, but also for pastors and people in leadership. And and I do think, like, I think for me, one of the things that has really risen to the surface as being central, which I love, you know, the connection between groundedness and humility um, because I see that to be so true. Like, I think, and I forget, I think Adam Grant maybe talks about humble confidence, or a few different people have paired those things together. But I think at our best, you know, at our God-given, like, self-best, we are humbly confident. We are in touch with the reality of our belovedness, and yet we are in touch with our fragility. And those two things together are really beautiful, and I think that we need that for such a time as this on, on both sides. And I would just say, you know, I think it's important always, especially with pastors, and probably they may already know this, but to recognize there is an inherent power differential. So even just by holding that position, even that, they, like someone may not even know you. <laughs> <laughs> they just know you hold that position. And that in and of itself may be hard for them. And I think it's a challenge to separate that out a little bit mm-hmm. and to say, you know what, like you, beloved person of God who has a hard time with my position, like I just free you up mm-hmm. to be like to go on your journey with God. Because I am not God, because I am limited, I just bless you. Mm-hmm. I bless you because I know that God of the universe does hold it all. And it's only when I'm connected to that humility, God, what's my part to play? That that also then allows me and really opens me up to my belovedness too. Mm-hmm. Because when I push up against my limits, which we do all the time, which is really normal and okay and really healthy, We can fall back into the belovedness to say, it's okay. It's enough. Like, if it all falls away, this is what I'm able to do. I can release people Mm -hmm. to go on their journey of healing. Mm -hmm. I can release myself to go on my journey with God. Mm -hmm. And for me, that then all gets wrapped up in honoring the mystery of this work. That's what holds the humility and the belovedness, is to trust there is something bigger. There is a God who is bigger that is holding this. And there are things that happen that I have gotten to witness, and I'm like, I don't know how that just happened exactly, but I praise God that it did. And like, what an honor to participate 
And I see so much of my work, like, I get to participate. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. You know, obviously, I don't work with every single person, every trauma survivor, but what a joy to participate in this work. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself, it like, it just, it gives more life. It births more generativity and life. Mm-hmm. It was never about the finish line. It yeah. was never about the numbers. Yeah. It was never about impressing people. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like settle into the reality and the truth of who you really are, because that is spacious and abundant. Hmm. I think one of my hopes that's just emerged in the last few weeks as I've thought about, there's just a poverty of wisdom in the church for how Mm -hmm. how to navigate these things. Since the 1960s, there have been these church movements that have defined themselves as, like, we're the church for the new emerging generation, right? Mm-hmm. We're the church for the people who don't have a place in the church. That mm-hmm. language just gets repeated every 10 years. But one of the things that it does is it does cut generationally. So, you don't have, you don't have those generational threads of stories that help people navigate and help leaders navigate. But on the positive side, I, I have to hope that my, my friend Ruben, he's a pastor who, who had said this to me one time, and it's always in my head. He says, you know, with every death in Christ, there's a resurrection. And I have to believe that in the stories of wounding that are, that are being told, in the stories of churches trying to, to navigate this stuff, that on the other side of this, maybe there is a coming wave of wounded healers mm. who are going to be able to own these stories, tell these stories, and as a community in small ways, in their local communities, on a, in, a, in an earthy, grounded way, right, a humble way, yeah. there can be mm-hmm. some, like a grassroots sort of reorientation for the church that, yeah. that can heal in these ways. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that whole piece around resurrection and just it's such a central tenant to our faith right that like ours is a god of resurrection and i think where the mystery comes in is we don't know what that will look like and that when jesus was resurrected like how much that flew in the face <laughs> mm-hmm. of what his followers what they expected from jesus i love though that i feel like god constantly is inviting us to see Um, even the tiny resurrections, you know? And I think a lot of times in the work that I do, even when we begin to experience those little moments of safety, like the first time you tell a little bit of your story and someone just like honors it and they just get it. Like, I'm like, that's like a little resurrection right there. You know, like there's something being born and that this is always, this is like almost always happening. And for me, that's grounding, (laughs) coming back to that word, but it's also so hopeful. May all of those small moments of resurrection birth something even bigger. But while we wait, while we're in process, we can have the eyes to see. We can pray that God would give us the eyes to see. That these things are happening, that there's that there are those tiny shoots already experience being experienced. You know, one of my most common prayers of this last couple of years has been, God, give me eyes to see the way you're already here. You're already working. Help me to just to tune in to what's already being experienced. 
Because I think so often, particularly in our pain, which is so valid, we miss it. We miss the invitations and the glimmers. And in a way, healing means we begin to see into that reality. We see it more clearly. And then we are better able to access, like God is already here, never left, right right here with us, grieving with us, but also birthing us to something new. And so that just gives me a lot of hope. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Andy Kolber's work at andykolber.com. The link is in our show notes. You can also check out her book, Try Softer, wherever you buy your books. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. This episode was produced, written, and mixed by Mike Cosper. Joy Beth Smith and Azure Phelps are our associate producers. Music by Kate Siefker. Graphic design by Rick Zuex. Social media by Kate Lucky. CT's editor-in-chief is Timothy Dalrymple. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon with a couple of more bonus episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world, and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.